Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. This is the 19th of October, 2020. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Lindsay Davis. She is a columnist for Modern Huntsman, also a board member of the Outdoor Alliance, which you're going to be hearing far more about, as well as an ambassador from Mystery Ranch. The variety of topics we cover today is insane. Everything from ecology and permaculture to running a small business, um, the impact of people in the environment, the Great American Outdoors Act. Uh, she talks about her testifying in Congress, being a naturalist, her transformation uh, from eating roadkill to being a hunter, and the importance of indigenous management. And that is probably about 20% of what we cover in this show. But before we get to that, a massive shout out to all of our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. And in the top tier this week, we have Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, and Mark Zabrowski. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you very much for the support of every single one of the Patreons that are there. If you want to check that page out, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. You can have a look at the different tiers and how you can help support the podcast. We ran a competition two weeks ago, as we always do with our partners, Modern Huntsman, to win a copy of Volume 3. And all I asked you to do uh, was rate or review the podcast. And a load of you did. So thank you so much because... Not only was it a way for you to enter the competition, it really, really helps uh, in getting this show picked up and seen by lots of other people on Apple Podcasts or uh, not so much not so much Spotify because they don't really have a, a rate or review system, but all the other platforms. It, it means that it becomes a recommended show more often if it has more ratings and more reviews. So anyway, uh, picking a review totally at random, I uh, scrolled down. Let me just scroll down the list here and randomly stop somewhere from all of the new ratings and reviews. And I've stopped on Tristan Stock, who commented on Apple Podcasts, who said, a great podcast giving an amazing, unbiased, balanced, and educated view on the wilderness here at home in the UK and abroad. Thank you very much. Contact the show. Shoot me an email, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. And I will get uh, volume three out to you. Now, I'm pressing pause on the competitions for this week because our partners, Modern Huntsman, I have just launched the most incredible photography competition. And so what I'm going to do is for the next 14 and a half minutes, you're going to hear from Tyler Sharp and Tito West from Modern Huntsman, who are going to tell you all about this photo competition why they've launched it, why it's important, what they hope to achieve with it, how you can enter it. And then we're going to skip over to my conversation with Lindsay. Tyler, Tito, welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Now, you guys are not on for very long. We've got a, a, a short intro here, but it's a really important one. Uh, I mentioned a couple of days ago on the show that went out to give people a bit of an update about uh, new timings with the podcast. But importantly, I, I put that out because I wanted to give people a heads up about this incredible photo competition that is running through Modern Huntsman and doesn't actually have that many days left uh, from when this podcast goes out. So, Mr. Sharp, photo competition. There's a lot of photo competitions out there. Why is Modern Huntsman launching a photo competition now? Sure. Well, just to specify, it's not just a photo competition because we also have a fine art category for illustration and painting and mixed media. But 
to add to that, right, as you know, Byron, and as many of your listeners probably know, we've always tried to find new perspectives and, and publish people who maybe hadn't had the spotlight before. And we've always talked about that. And this was a way, uh, especially, you know, with conversations around wanting to have more perspectives and more diversity in, in the outdoor and hunting industries. This is kind of us putting out a call to see more work from different people, different backgrounds, different countries, different industries. Maybe they're fine artists, maybe they're studio artists. And we've, we've managed to assemble a really impressive list of judges, all just amazing people, none, almost none of which are from the hunting industry, who have all offered their time to review work and, and different from other competitions we're actually giving paid assignments. So the winner of each of the eight categories will get a paid assignment. We'll publish them as an artist feature on our site. They're going to get feedback from some of these industry professionals. I mean, we've got former creative director of National Geographic, director director of photography for Patagonia, editorial director of Nike, photo director of Red Bull, faculty director of the Art Center in Pasadena, marketing ranches, uh, sorry, mystery ranches, Marketing director. I, I'm still drinking coffee, so it hasn't quite kicked in. Chris Burkhard, who was our photographer, cover image on volume two, uh, and then marketing director from First Light. So apart from paid work and feedback portfolio reviews from professionals, we're, we're doing introductions to brands. So in terms of all of us thinking back as freelancers, what was an amazing opportunity that we would have loved to have taken? This is something we, we built to try to beat that. So... That's it's incredible, and it's just to emphasize something that you, that you mentioned. This is Modern Huntsman's uh, call to bring new people into the space. This is this is for yeah. everyone. This this is a this is a call out to say we want to see work from everyone, from every walk of life, yeah. from every corner of the planet. Yes, and not necessarily just new work, right? That doesn't uh, we don't want to rule anybody out. Anyone we've worked with before, we'd like to see more of their work. We want to see people from other industries, people who aren't hunters, maybe who are just starting as a photographer. But yes, and, and we called it field outrider, which is, is, is kind of a fancy word for scout. It was a word they used in the American West. Outrider was somebody who would basically go out and scout the territory to make sure that there weren't any imminent dangers or uh, any of that sort of thing. So that's kind of the idea. We're always looking for new work. And, and so this is kind of our way to do that. Tito. Tell me a little bit about what I mean. I know this is going to come down to a collaborative discussion with with the judges, but in terms of when uh, yourself and Tyler and the rest of the team are putting this together and and creating this vision for uh, the kind of work and the the bar that you want to set with this, what are you looking for? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I think. Obviously, we're looking for quality work, but I really think we're looking for diverse perspectives, people who are doing something different and not just different, but I think people who are shooting stuff that's very close to them so that the work comes across with some meaning. I don't really I think there's so many talented individuals out there shooting photos these days that we're less interested in finding someone who can just shoot anything and everything. We want somebody who is drawn to a certain subject because they have some sort of a tie to it. And I think that comes across in the work and actually elevates it to a level, you know, more than if they're just a good technical photographer. Yeah, because there's there's a big difference between being technically perfect and being able to tell a story with an image. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's easier now than ever to take a technically perfect photograph. That's 
that's like kind of the entry level thing. What we want to see after that is your ability to convey um, emotion and meaning through a photograph. I'm just going to say, just to add to to what what you know, Tito and I have had a lot of conversations about what Tito's kind of ultimate vision is for you know what he wants modern huntsman to be perceived at in in the com- photography community and and whether that's somebody who's established or whether that's somebody that we help discover and and uplift and work with so why don't you tell me a little bit about that yeah i mean i think there's kind of two different camps of photography there's like the actual photography world with fashion and kind of more photojournalism and then you kind of have outdoor photography over in its own space and the two have never blended very well. I think that barrier is starting to remove a little bit. But our goal is to kind of have, you know, outdoor photography taken very seriously by the photo world. And I think the fact that we have the judges that we do shows that we're already moving in that direction. So now it's about finding people that can kind of lead that charge. And especially on the emerging side, it's it's one of the hardest industries to break into. And, you know, people really need... A connection and that's what we're that's what we're doing is we're kind of shortening the time span and putting them in front of people that they may otherwise really never have an opportunity to meet so i think there's value even even for people that enter the competition and maybe don't go on to win it since there can only be one winner for each category their work is still going to be seen and going to be reviewed by these judges and i think a lot of those i think a lot of work is going to stick out in the judge's mind and they're going to remember it and they will go back to it. So I think it's a really interesting thing that we're doing. And it's just the first step in like a huge evolution that we want to do um, in terms of making a contribution to the photography world. Yeah, because, you know, since the very inception of Modern Huntsman as a publication, along with the actual content, the words and the meaning of, of the words and the stories that are being told, it has been seen from the very start as um, as a publication that has kind of set the bar in the outdoor space for using photography as an art form to complement the words that are in uh, that are written on the pages, so I suppose that this is an extension of that, and it's trying to open that a bit a bit more and pull more people into that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think the photos definitely do complement the words in a, in the publication a lot. Um, but there's several times where we want the photos to tell their own version of their story or, or for it to be a, a separate medium that conveys emotion in another way. That's not just illustration of the words. So photography tells its own story. And even going into this next volume, we're leaning on some very photographic heavy stories with, with minimal or sometimes no words. So I think photography has been at the forefront of what Tyler has been wanting to do with Modern Huntsman ever since the beginning. And, you know, this is no different and we're going to lean into it. And, um, you know, eventually we'll probably do something similar with writing, but photography is kind of the cornerstone of what everything is based on right now. And we're going to really push into this space. Yeah. And Byron, it's, it's also another way for us to try to bring some sort of help to artists and freelancers and photographers and artists who just maybe don't have work because there's really not a lot of people handing out assignments. And so this is a way for us to do what we can, even though it's a minor gesture, you know, to get people working. 
Yeah, that that is absolutely true. There is almost no work out there at the, at the moment, especially in the writing and photography space. Tyler, just as a way to kind of uh, wrap this up and bring it to a conclusion, uh, tell me about the categories. You've mentioned a couple of them already. What are the categories that people can enter into? Sure. So, in no particular order, but we have you know we have a wildlife category, obviously based around animals and things like that, uh, and, and we wanted to make sure that not all of these were related specifically to hunting. Um, we have a wild places that is more focused on the environment. It, it could be interpreted literally as a landscape, but also just atmospheric, right? The culture, and culture, environments. Yeah. Um, we have a Western category. So obviously that's limited to kind of the spirit of the West doesn't necessarily have to be in the United States because there's Western culture in Argentina and, yeah. you know, gaucho culture and things like that. Um, we have a harvest category which could be interpreted literally as, you know, wild game, but really that's kind of a culinary category. Yeah. Um, that could be food, that could be wine, that could be foraging, mushrooms, um, you know, fruit, whatever that is. Uh, let's see, we have an artist category. So, so that's, you know, painters, illustrations, artists. Uh, we have an emerging category, and, and that's basically either student work or somebody who – you know, ideally has less than two years of professional experience. Uh, we have a pursuit, a pursuit category that, and that's more related specifically to hunting. Right. And that is, you know, we've always talked about, you know, not just the hunt shouldn't just be about whether or not you kill something or that whether or not you come home successfully with an animal or whatever you're pursuing, whether that's fish or deer uh, and then, so this is more about the journey of actually being out in the field, whether that's fishing, whether that's hunting, uh, you know, just tracking, it could be, you know, bird watching, whatever anything the pursuit like that. is to you. Yeah, yeah. Whatever the pursuit is. And then we have a portraiture category. So that's obviously a pretty wide range of subject matter. doesn't have to be related to hunting, but, uh, but I think that's something that Tito, you know, has a lot more experience in and, and, and the power of an image of a person to tell a story, whether that's a close up on their face with the lines and the emotion in their eyes, or that's more of a environmental portrait that shows the environment and, and location they're in. But, uh, but yeah, those are the eight categories. And, you know, we intentionally picked a, a wide enough range to allow people who aren't specifically from this industry to participate. But at the same time, you know, anyone who's in the outdoor hunting, angling world can still submit relevant work. It's a very exciting prospect. And the, the prizes are, are insane. I've not really seen prizes like that in, uh, in the photography competition game. And uh, I'm just jealous that I can't enter because uh, I know you guys are involved in Modern Huntsman. Uh, that's, the, that's the only negative I see of this competition is that I'm not allowed to enter. Although... Uh, I, I imagine we're going to have some incredible entries, and I'm I'm so excited to lay my eyes on on the the imagery that comes through for each category. You you could you could enter, and then if you win, that's a chance for you to show how noble you are, and you could denounce your prize for the next runner up. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. Look, it's an incredible initiative, uh, especially now this this time that we're living in right now. Uh, like you highlighted, uh, Tyler, it's uh, it's been very difficult, especially for writers and especially for photographers and freelancers and all walks of life, uh, because we've all been sat at home and we all rely normally on work 
uh, traveling around and telling other people's stories, which has been very, very difficult right now. So to have this opportunity and be able to showcase work in front of an, an incredible array of judges, as well as uh, you know the team at Modern Huntsman, is an amazing opportunity. So if people want to find out more and they want to enter this, where do they head? So that's that's at modernhuntsman.com forward slash field dash outrider. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you go to the Modern Huntsman website, it's on the homepage. If you go to our Instagram profile and you click the link in the bio, there's a link to submit. And and just one one final parting point to make, you know, we've had a lot of people say that they feel intimidated by the judges because they are, you know, very accomplished, successful, influential people. But I, I had a call with all eight or nine of them, eight of them the other day, and they could not be more excited and anxious to see more work. So if there was one thing I would just relay to anyone listening who would consider sending something, it would be to just do it because the, everybody, this is, a, this is a, a greater good. Everybody really wants to give back. And, and these are all people who are thinking back to when they were just starting their careers and they really want uh, to just help lift people up and, and do something good and give back a little bit. So send us your work. Gents, thank you very much for your time today. I'm looking forward to getting this out to everybody and uh, seeing the... So actually, Tyler, before, before I do let you go, when do people have to submit this by? Because that's important. When's the deadline? Sure. As of right now, it's Sunday, October 25th is the, I think that's the 25th. Yes. Sunday, October 25th. And then basically, because the winners will be published in volume six. So we have to, you know, be able to judge this in time and select the winners and then actually get it into design and layout. So lots of stuff. When you listen to this podcast, get going, get your pictures together, get them submitted. Yep. Thanks very much, gents. I will speak to you both soon. Cheers, Cheers Brian. Brian. Thank you. I'm excited, actually, to have the opportunity to have a uh, a long-form conversation with you because I remember last time we spoke and it was only going to be an intro to um, another show and I was like, I want to speak to you for longer. This isn't fair. <laughs> I know. We were both... We, we really made the most of our 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Well... Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick right off here. So, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It's awesome to have you on. We spoke on the podcast very briefly. I can't even remember when it was. I mean, it could have been two years ago, I think, uh, as a little bit of um, an introduction prior to a, a main conversation with whoever the other guest was on that particular show. And you were talking about one of your contributions to Modern Huntsman. But I have seen you much more recently than that. It's hard to believe that it was actually the start of this year because it feels like three or four years ago already because so much has ha- well, so much has happened this year and yet so little has happened this year because 2020 is very weird in that way. Um, but how have you been since I saw you in, where were we, Dallas, Texas? Yeah, we were in Dallas. Um, I actually can't believe that was the same year. That does feel like at least two years ago, Byron, but how fun was that? <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. we were at a um, well, it was Dallas Safari Club and we were like a, a journalist, uh, well, it wasn't just just journalists, but uh, I think they called it a journalist symposium. And we were discussing the future of conservation and the role that hunting plays in that. And that was the first time you'd been a part of one of those, was it, Lindsay? Yeah, yeah, it was very, very interesting. It was kind of a closed door, small group session all day. 
with different hunters and non-hunters and conservationists from around the world. And we just sat there toiling over our experiences and trying to figure out what role communication has in the future of hunting and how all of these different wildlife management models are going to be sustained. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. We had some incredible people around the table and some fascinating discussions. Um, I always leave those kind of chats. You're in awe of the knowledge of of the people in the room. Yeah, me too. I mean, it was the part that was so impactful for me is the first time I was around really a global perspective um, of hunting rather than, you know, the North American wildlife model. So I learned so much from you and Jack and and the other folks that were in attendance. Who, who knows if that's even going to happen? I mean, there was supposed to be a kind of a, an equivalent one to that, uh, to that particular uh, event. I think it was supposed to be August uh, this year, but quite obviously that never happened. And I would imagine that they'd loosely planned to do the same thing at Dallas Safari Club again in February. Uh, but who knows if any of those shows are going to happen this year? Oh, sorry, not this year, next year. Yeah, there's a couple. They're starting to pop up. Um, I've heard that SHOT Show is happening. Um, Okay. The Western Hunting Show here in Salt Lake City, Utah, where I'm based, is happening. So they're they're popping up, but I would say 90% of trade shows are canceled through next year. You're in Utah. Now, where... I mean, we have. I mean, I think half of the the listeners for the podcast pretty much are are Americans, uh, you know, from the USA. So they will know where Utah is. But for all the rest of the listeners, where in the U.S. is Utah situated? So Utah's in the the Rocky Mountain West. It's part of the Colorado Plateau, and it is below Idaho, next to Colorado. Um, really beautiful complex place with a rich history and strange religion and a high high percentage of public lands and a really dynamic landscape of big mountains and vast swaths of desert and desert ranges and and of course expansive red rock landscape yeah yeah that's what that's what i picture that red rock landscape when i think of utah but i've never been oh you have to come visit byron I would love to. I'd love to. At the moment, I'm not allowed into the U.S. Well, not not if I come straight from the U.K., unfortunately. Yeah. I'm still working on a solution to that. Um, let's rewind a little bit, Lindsay, because, I, I mean, I kind of, uh, yeah, I got introduced to you through Modern Huntsman. When we had that first conversation on the podcast, I, I read your stuff uh, or some of your contributions a year before. Um, but I really don't know very much about your backstory. We we actually we sat together at, at dinner um, at that event at Dallas, and we we had a good great chat that evening. But um, it was about current things that were going on in our lives at the time. So I, I never really got a chance to to dig into how you even how you came to hunt hunt with a bow, how you came to write a contribution to Modern Huntsman, how you linked up with Tyler. None of that. So like, I mean, but take me right back. What was it like for you growing up? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Colorado mostly, um, but moved a lot as a kid. So bounced back and forth between um, California and Colorado a lot. Um, But very fortunate to have grown up in a camping, fishing, outdoor family. Although no one in my family hunts um, and I'm still the only person that does. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a big kind of surprise for everybody. Um, I definitely had like a long uh, relationship of exposure to the outdoors and then, you know, with the typical sort of camping, hiking, climbing activities throughout my teens. And then um, when I was in my 20s, I started learning a lot about I studied international development and sustainable development and worked a lot with communities internationally for kind of developing regional resiliency in their food systems or in their housing or water systems, stuff like that. Um, and it got me really into permaculture, um, which is this design methodology for living within ecological systems. And then I started doing that work in the Mountain West, kind of in my mid-20s, learned how to farm, was working on a lot of kind of several hundred acre um, sites where we were, you know, using all on-site resources to build the structures there and move water throughout the landscape and plant food forests and stuff like that. So really cool, got kind of way into food. That's fascinating. Yeah. I was, love that. It was such an awesome chapter. I made no money for like 10 years, but... <laughs> <laughs> so what was the organization you were working for? Oh, there were so many. So um, there was so a lot, kind of what got me into it was I did this field studies program in college that doesn't exist anymore, sadly, but it's called the Sierra Institute. And you spend two months backpacking and learning about permaculture in the course that I took. And then I started teaching for them. So it was such a cool blend of things that I loved, which were you know, being outside, going on like extended backcountry adventures, but then also learning about deep ecology and how to have like a very involved relationship with the place that you live um, and you know, learn to live from the landscape that's around you. So um, and then I just sort of bounced around from different permaculture institutions throughout the West, um, either teaching or uh, living there. Um, and then of course they're all nonprofits and I had a development background. So it was a good way for me to, um, make a living being either a grant writer or program developer, stuff like that. So just, I, I know you gave us a very brief overview of it, but just unpack permaculture a little bit. Cause a lot of people that that might very well be the first time they've ever heard of this. It sounds to me like it's very much about, uh, sustainable living and use of, of resources on the land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, people said, sort of say permaculture is a you know relatively new idea based on thousands of year old concepts, like how indigenous people lived and stuff like that. But there's a couple key figures in the seventies who coined that term permaculture and started writing books about it. So they get the credit. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, so it's a way to, um, live within your ecology basically. And that can mean a number of things, but a lot of it is designed around small scale home and ag agricultural systems. And so you take into consideration, like if you're going to build a house, there's all sorts of design met methodologies for, um, doing assessments in your area. So you'd want to know where the prevailing winds are, you know, what, how does the sun cycle around the landscape? How does water flow through it throughout the year? How do you use all of that natural energy that's there to get the most passive solar gain, heating and cooling out of your house? So it would teach you and coach you through like 
exactly where you should put your house and how you should build it and where the windows would be in order to have the most efficient home structure. Um, So stuff like that, and you can apply it to pretty much everything. So the same would go for your food system, your gardens, how you're going to grow anything on the landscape. It's really optimizing the aspect, the available resources, the, the natural benefits of the climate and using them to your advantage. That's brilliant. I mean, it's all those are all the things that we are going to have to consider going forward if we want to live more sim- sympathetically on the planet. I mean, just when you're talking about house building there, it's we spend I know because we've got a friend building a house not too far from where my parents live right now and actually I helped my dad build the house that um that my parents live in. And so much of the the regulations are around uh, understandably about um like the efficiency of homes so that's like the, the insulation uh, within them or uh, like offsetting um energy usage through using solar panels or um air source heating but as far as i know certainly here anyway there's no stipulation that says well, you need to make sure there's so many windows facing a certain direction so that you're maximizing uh, the heat transfer from the sun into your house. <laughs> I don't think that exists, but really it, it's wasteful not to. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a structure for it with LEED certifications in buildings, which is, I don't know if that's, I think that's an international thing. It's definitely a North America thing. Um, but yeah, it's not so specific that it's it's, but it's more about sort of the overall health of a building that's going up. So there's kind of cool stuff. I, it's kind of like a biodynamic farm. You know, you think about all these different inputs and um, and try and optimize the whole system rather than just say the organic tomato that comes out. But um, you're right that it's it's definitely not a widespread way of thinking. And for how many rules there are in building a house, you'd think we could innovate a little bit on some of them. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, where did you? Where did so you? You did that for you said a decade. What um, pulled you out of that? So to do whatever it was you did next. Yeah. So I um, I ended up getting an itch for entrepreneurship, and uh, I kind of went through a big life change that was one of those very rare moments in adult life where you all of a sudden have a lot of uh, open road in front of you. Um, I had had land and a partner and a job that I no longer um, wanted to have anymore. (laughs) So I met another friend and we ended up starting a business in the outdoor industry, which was an online retailer for, for women. Um, Super cool. We were the first and only women specific retailer. And I got really interested in it because when I started to do kind of the R and D around the concept Um, At the time, there was very few brands that were focusing on sustainability and kind of materials innovation. And and there were also very few brands that were working with uh, nonprofits in the conservation space, you know, because the and I thought that was just a glaring gap because you have all these outdoor recreation businesses that are completely dependent on healthy ecosystems and places to go. I try and explain this to (laughs) 
some of the big companies in the outdoor space all the time. You know, when I happen to be at events or whatever, and I'm sitting around dinner or, you know, however those conversations may be, you know, very often with people very high up in these companies. And to try and just explain this very basic concept that is if you do not help protect, say it's within the hunting industry, that's a, that's quite a good example. If you are not interested in protecting um, or preserving hunting as a as an outdoor recreation and, a, and an activity that people will do in the future, you will have no business. And in the same respect, if we are not protecting the environment that we enjoy using and utilize as part of outdoor activities, those activities will also cease to exist. And so these businesses will no longer function. But to, to explain this concept, because, and I think the, the issue lies when, I, when I've had these conversations, the issue is definitely uh, is because the time frame that you have to consider this over is so long. It's beyond where the immediate concern of most of the people running those companies is. Yeah. Well, I like to explain it as, you know, public lands and waters are our core infrastructure. And we, and, and, you know, in the case of hunting and fishing, it's, it's wildlife. And I think people are starting to get it, but, uh, but you're right that it's, it's a relatively new understanding. I think hunters have been aware of it for at least a little bit longer, but we, we do. Um, we can definitely be blamed for taking our availability of uh, land and places to explore for granted. Yeah, for granted. So, uh, when you set up that uh, that company, what was what was your interaction with those uh, kinds of organizations that were that were concerned about protection of the environment and su- sustainable resources? Well, it was interesting because uh, you know at the time when we started the company, the outdoor industry hadn't even turned its attention to women yet. Uh, mm. So, you know, and that was still- is that is that when they were just starting to like print pink camo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, that that was the nod to yeah. to women in the outdoor space in hunting was, hang on, let's just remake the clothes that we make for dudes, but we'll put some pink we'll put some pink lines on it, and then that that basically means that it's good for it's good yeah, for women. They'll buy it. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> but yeah, there and and now you look at the industry, and we are having really complex conversations around indigenous people, people of color, um, all of the different racial justice and inequality issues that are so prevalent this year, especially. So there has just been so much that has happened. And of course, in that same time gap, you have a vast awareness around public lands and the public land crisis here in the U.S. and the different politics at play. And, you know, we really saw some brands step up and, and acknowledge that that was not okay. And so I think there's been a huge, I mean, of course, there's many, many miles to go, but, um, but I'm amazed when I look back at that timestamp at how much has been accomplished. So I think, I think we're on the right track. And there's also kind of in that same mix, you know, only, only three, four years ago, did we first get um, real numbers out of the Bureau of Economic Analysis about outdoor recreation in the U.S. And 
it was the first time that they measured it and separated it into its own category for its contribution to the gross domestic product. And what they found was that we were 2.2% of GDP, which is huge. It's more that's than, huge. More than, only uh, that, more than computers, you know. And so we also were very emboldened as an industry by that initial research to say like, hey, like it actually really does matter as an industry and an economic driver uh, when we say you need to protect our core infrastructure in public lands and waters. Mm. And that's all outdoor industries. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this just made me think of something which I think um, we touched on or, or possibly you brought up or maybe it was Jess that brought it up uh, at that meeting in February was this idea of a backpack tax f- oh, yeah. to be then put put into uh, the conservation and protection of these of public resources and the great outdoors. Um, just expand on that a little bit and it hasn't happened. I've, I've had my, sli- my finger slightly off the pulse with that. It hasn't happened, um, so it's but it's a very hot topic, um, one that has died down a little bit this year because uh, the tariffs of the recent administration have been so high that, and of course, businesses have struggled so much this year that any additional taxes or tariffs would um, severely cripple the outdoor industry at this point in time. Um, so that hasn't happened, but the sort of thesis of, or the meaning behind it is that many of the other uh, recreation activities like hunting, like fishing, like boating, like RVing, they all have some type of use tax or um, excise tax that goes into funding conservation and wildlife and habitat. So uh, the outdoor industry, as we think of it as like the skiers, the climbers, the hikers, um, to this day don't have anything like that. Um, And so it's one of the issues that um, I think is really preventing us from having a more unified voice when it comes to uniting all types of recreationalists, because many of the other groups are paying into these taxes and um, programs and some just aren't. So a hot topic, it's actually one that I'm going to be taking up here very soon in my next column for uh, Modern Huntsman is kind of the the current landscape for public lands funding and uh, and the future of it. Oh, interesting. And when you say column, uh, we'll maybe save this for later on in the discussion, but when you say column, you're talking about your online contribution? Yes. Excellent. Okay, well, we're, we're, we're definitely going to pick that up, make sure I don't forget. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one because I, I've talked about this before or I've written about it before. And for so many people that I've had this conversation with who are, are maybe not involved in activities that have the, the opportunity um, or a system in place for you to pay in to the conservation and protection of the environment that you're utilizing. Most of the people I've had conversations with are very willing to, but those systems as it stands do not exist. You know, if I think about here at home, I mean, we don't, unless you're a member of a conservation organization, um, I mean, even the shooting, uh, like pro um, hunting organizations in the UK, the only one 
that is really funneling money into like proper scientific research and conservation is GWCT. As far as I know, I'm happy for somebody to write into the podcast and tell me otherwise. Um, but you'd have to be off your own back, go and seek out an organization that is then putting money in. There's no form of, of tax on the purchase of products that means that whether you like it or not, you're paying in, into a system. But most people I had that conversation with would be very happy to. So it's almost like I think that there can be um, – sometimes we have to be careful of like pointing the finger at people who just enjoy hill walking or people who just enjoy kayaking and say, well, you're not paying into the system. We're like, well, well, how? Like, How do I pay in to protect these areas if there isn't a mechanism in place for me to put money in that direction? Um, and I, I wonder how much resistance there really would be to it. And so from that, it seems strange to me that it, we're not further down the road of actually implementing it, especially in the States where there are, as you've already listed, a number of activities which already have a system in place for funneling um, funds into these great initiatives. Yeah. Yeah, I I philosophically agree with you. And when we get down to the brass tacks of actually implementing these concepts, it gets really sticky really fast. And a lot of it is because of these recent tariffs. Um, and so things are just getting more expensive. And what manufacturers have said is that any additional fees on top of that are going to, you know, hamstring small businesses for one, which the outdoor industry, even though we have so many hundreds of thousands of businesses, uh, we are primarily made up of small businesses. Um, so, I mean, you and I both know how tough it is to be a small business and they've expressed um, that a lot of those fees are going to get pushed on to the consumer, which for some people is okay. You know, if you think about the current sort of demographic, or at least before the last couple of years, um, it's generally white, middle-class people who can afford the extra couple bucks on the $500 backpack that they're already buying. Um, but right now, we have a really fascinating thing happening in outdoor, which is especially exacerb exacerbated by COVID in this year, where we have a huge new wave of users and participants in the outdoor industry and um, immediately issues of access and inequity just come right up as, you know, it's like already too expensive and, and determined to be sort of an elitist industry. Um, and we're working really hard to fix that. Um, but if you push more fees onto people buying things to get into it, then the barrier to entry gets even higher. And that's, I think, the number one thing that we really want to be avoiding. Yeah, that is a really interesting dynamic. Um, and uh, the increase in uh, people being interested in accessing in, in whatever form that might be, outdoors spaces, is amazing in one respect, because you hope that it means that they will then uh, gain a greater appreciation for it and then want to protect it. But in another breath, that extra burden on the landscape from quite literally all of these 
extra feet on the ground, if there isn't the infrastructure in the place to cope with uh, to cope with it, that in itself is a fundamental problem. And I know that uh, we, we've seen that we see that here on the west coast of Scotland, and we see it in the U.S. in the national parks, and we we see it all around the world when it when it comes to the tourism. Uh, whether that be international tourism or indeed local tourism, of people visiting these more wild natural landscapes. Yeah, and you know, I 100% am of the position that it's not a problem of available area, but a problem of distribution. Um, we mm-hmm. have so many places for people to go. Um, but you know, and Instagram has not helped this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you you want to go to the place that everybody's going and take the selfie that everybody takes at Horseshoe Bend or whatever it is, you know. But we have so much room to be spreading out on public lands throughout the U.S. and so, and that's you know an infrastructure issue, like you're saying. Um, but one of the main things that is being talked about on the policy front this year with, you know, this huge influx of investment with the Great American Outdoors Act being passed and the Land and Water Conservation Fund being fully funded and reauthorized. Um, There's a huge influx of resources coming towards outdoor recreation and public lands. And there's a bunch of recreation bills on the docket right now that are designed to help with some of these issues and be studying where people are going a little bit more, working on disbursement, like helping us not have such a devastating impact on, you know, fewer places. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask the Great American Outdoors Act. I saw uh, the build up to that as it, it was as it was passing through the the various stages um, to become enacted in law. For those people outside of the U.S., what what is it and what does it mean? So this is the largest investment in public lands in a hundred years. It's it's the most. So like since since Teddy Roosevelt, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the biggest thing to happen since the trails in Yosemite were built. Um, it's really amazing that it happened this year amidst everything else that is going on. Uh, it came as a shock to everybody that it got through. Um, but people have been working on this for decades. You know, there's, I mean, I have some colleagues that have been working on LWCF for, for that long, if not longer. Um, and it's, it's massive. So it's, you know, billions of dollars going into public lands over the next five years with the Great American Outdoors Act. And that's going, um, to a lot of the deferred maintenance that we have on public lands and dilapidated infrastructure. Cause there's a huge backlog there, isn't there? Huge, massive, massive. Um, so right now all of the agencies are working on prioritizing, which projects are getting done um, and securing the funding for the first year of it, which has been a pretty chaotic process. Um, And then uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund is uh, $900 million a year in perpetuity um, that goes to both federal and state uh, projects. So pretty just remarkable happening (laughs) legislatively for um, for anybody interested in recreation, hunting, fishing, what have you. It's amazing. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, it's going to be fantastic to see as that 
rolls out now in the years to come, what is done with that money? And I just uh, the the only fear that I have, uh, and it's kind of a good fear to have. It's just because there's so much money involved, is that it's used wisely because i mean it seems like these endless sums of money but they they soon disappear and i i i worry sometimes when the numbers are so large that uh, organizations can be a little frivolous with uh, how they spend it um mm-hmm. but i mean the fact that there is so much money is a nice problem to have i suppose yeah well don't worry byron because i'm on it this is like, you are yeah i mean me and a whole army of other uh, very passionate people but uh, my current work is with an organization called the outdoor recreation roundtable which is the voice for recreation on the national scale and we represent all of the businesses in recreation um, through their trade associations from diving to the american horse council to rv boating hunting fishing everybody you could think of. Um, And so what we're working on right now is looking at all of these various projects that could happen through LWCF and um, investments with GAOA and mapping them out to identify where we have the highest ROI for recreation as a whole, Um, you know, how we can benefit the, the most industries at once with these investments. Oh, amazing! I I didn't even ask that question because I I thought that it was connected with your new work because we I I knew that we were going to get to that, but I didn't really know what it was that you were involved with. So it was almost like I planned that. Yeah, seamless. So it just so I, I want to talk more on that, but so you uh, you were right, but I, I want to keep the timeline going for the people who are listening. So you ran uh, this this business that was focused on uh, women in the outdoor space. Uh, but that, obviously, that must have run its course because now you've got a new job. Yes. So, what was the? How, how did that timeline work? Uh, so, the my business um, started to be in flux end of last year and definitely beginning of this year. And it actually, you know, there are a lot of things in play with that, which was just still being a, a very um, difficult startup as most startups are um, issues with my business partner. And then also I, I attribute some of my transition to just life stage. And I started the business when I was 27 and I was living out of a camper vehicle and you can make any decisions you want when you <laughs> have that little of overhead in your life. And now, um, you know, I'm married and I'm in my thirties and I have shifting priorities. And so for a whole host of reasons, um, I started exploring other options amidst kind of the adversity that was happening in my business and certain things that were just kind of tying my hands a little bit. And, um, I'm really consider myself really, really lucky to have uh, gotten an opportunity to work with uh, my friend and now boss, Jessica Wall, um, who I had known years before. Um, We'd actually collaborated on a few projects within the Outdoor Industry Association where she positioned me as the first person to be talking about hunting in um, in that professional space. 
So we've known each other for a while. And then she started working for the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable. At one, at one point, she had me testify in front of Congress, which is oh, wow. the scariest thing I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> Hang on, pause there, pause there, pause there for a moment. So what were you? What was that experience like? And what were you testifying for? Oh, my gosh. It was, you know, Byron, it was that unhealthy fear. You know, when you do something where you're like, okay, I got this. Or then you do the type two fun stuff where you're like, well, that was scary, but I'm okay. And the plane ride going to DC when I was just stuck in my seat, um, I was like, this is full panic fear. I'm terrified. This is this, what am I doing? You know, had all those thoughts, but, um, but I was in the end very well prepared for this. Um, she'd done a great job helping me write my testimony and, um, and kind of, prepare for being in the hot seat for questions, but I ended up testifying in front of the small business committee, um, which was the first time that the outdoor industry had been in front of the small business committee um, and was able to kind of talk about a lot of things we've talked about today, which is this growing influence of the industry, our connection to both small business tax workforce um, but also public lands and conservation and habitat and really trying to get um, different uh, aspects of Congress to understand the complexities of our industry amidst the immense power um, that we're building at the same time. So um, it was it was cool. It was very scary. <laughs> but That's amazing. It all worked out. <laughs> well, I mean, with, with that as a, a baseline of experience with so many powerful people around you. I mean, everything after that's easy. Is it not? It definitely set the bar for what type of public speaking freaks me out. Um, Which is funny because I actually, a few weeks ago, I did a town hall with Senator Mitt Romney from my house here in Utah. And there were like 400 people on a Zoom call. And I was talking to the senator. And I got all of the physical uh, debilitations that (laughs) happen to you when you're public speaking. I was like, this is so bizarre because I'm alone in my house, but my pits are sweating and (laughs) heart rate is elevated. And I was like, I guess it's just, it doesn't matter if you're public speaking to just yourself. It's still scary. But, you know, it definitely helped me develop some some confidence and set the bar for what's truly terrifying in public speaking <laughs> you keep on taking me by surprise what on earth were you doing speaking with Mitt Romney <laughs> I've got to know uh, similar things um so the uh Utah has and I think now 17 states in the U.S. have an office of outdoor recreation that's usually part of the governor's office of economic development. And it's um, something that my current work kind of helps establish um, throughout the States. But um, if you think of us like the national coalition for recreation, the States all have their state version as well. And um, I was asked by the Utah office to speak in a town hall alongside the office of tourism um, to talk about recreation in the state and its economic presence. That's that's pretty big. It was fun. It, you know, Some heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah. It was it was effective. I think um, I think I'm getting a little bit better at the Zoom uh, Zoom environment. 
Do you are you one of these people who you do the do the zoom with a, a different background behind you, like on the green no, screen? No, I'm I'm very meticulous about it, and my husband's desk is behind me, and I always clean up his desk, and then like put a plant behind me and <laughs> <laughs> and kind of make my scene behind my screen. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I, I it's very rare that uh, I mean I have to do zoom from time to time but it's normally not for anything particularly important but i do have a rather beautiful bookcase in my office now that's very well organized and sort of laid out the only problem i have with it is it really depends on the audience because if you were to look across my bookcase like the bottom row is like every book that's probably ever been written on the history of bolt action rifles <laughs> and then the, well, the one above that is an entire shelf on ballistics and terminal ballistics then you get into more stuff that might be palatable for for your average person like there's you know heaps of stuff on conservation in africa and uh, different different parts of the world conservation from different parts of the world and then a lot of uh, non-fiction stuff but in amongst all of that is like little ornaments and skulls. Oh, cool! So there's a sort of skulls. Pe- I mean, I love it. It's it, it looks very cool. But uh, I, I I sometimes think of you know when you watch the. I mean, it was very much a topic of conversation in the last six months because all these news reporters and people who they were interviewing, they weren't in studios. They were all in their place, like you've described, at home on a Zoom call. And they all try and position it in a, in some, in a place that looks good. And very often, just I think mostly because they think it makes you look smart, is they position it with a bookcase behind you, which is why I sometimes use my bookcase because I, hopefully it makes me look a little bit more intelligent than I am. Um, well, and that, it was like, what, what books are on... <laughs> <laughs> what books are on their shelves and what does that say about you? And people were going into these massive rabbit holes about the, the oh types of God. books that were on people's bookshelves. If only they saw the skulls on mine. I know. Well, it's funny. I'm sitting here and my, my very first deer skull is on my desk next to me. So we have a little bit of the same vibe. Good, good. Actually, I mean, this is completely off. I mean, it's kind of off topic. But someone was asking, we were, I was having the dreaded, and I, I don't think we're going to get into this today, but I was having the the dreaded sort of trophy hunting debate and like, what is trophy hunting and what is a trophy? It was just with a friend of mine who's a gamekeeper up near where I live. I hadn't seen for a while. And he was asking, he was like, well, do you keep stuff? Like, do you have skulls and stuff? I says, I do. But equally, I have like the skull of a hedgehog that I found dead on my bookshelf. I have uh, the skull of a stoat, which I found dead. And I'm just fascinated by the structure. And I always have been since a little kid. I'm fascinated by the structure and form of skulls of wild things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have it's, a yeah, it's just black baggie full of porcupine quills that I pulled off a dead porcupine a couple weeks ago. It's yeah, I, I agree with you. It's like this, this intimacy that you don't get otherwise. And I, I cherish it. I think it's one of the most beautiful parts about being able to see animals, you know? Absolutely. You've just reminded me, actually, I have a friend in Minnesota who has a porcupine skull for me in his freezer. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, I know. And I, I've just remembered that it's there because it's it's going to take pride. When eventually I get it back, it's going to take pride of place in my skull collection. But there, there's another example. Like, I have no real connection to that skull other than it was sourced by a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, but it has nothing to do with hunting other than I'm like fat. I mean, they're an incredible skull to look at. It's like one that I would, a friend of mine in LA has one, um, is a beaver skull. 
I mean, beaver oh. skulls. And I actually, I really like beavers. So I don't know how I really feel. About, although they are a, a legal species in some places to hunt, I don't know how I really feel about hunting them. I'm undecided yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, their skulls are amazing. Yeah, and then you get the teeth too. I know. It's the teeth that make a squirrel. I actually, I have a squirrel, a red squirrel skull. Red squirrels are protected here, but I have a red squirrel skull because I found one dead on the road. Um, That's a really very cool skull as well. Anyway, we're getting off topic here. Well, I mean, you're in good company, Byron, because I've still, for years, I'm like the, so you have a dead thing hotline in my friend group. And I still, I was roadkill girl. Roadkill is like what actually got me into hunting which we really, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, for a long time I was a vegetarian and then I started working on farms and being really involved with food in the permaculture days and getting acquainted with regional food systems. And then I was doing a bunch of like outdoor education stuff at the same time. And, um, we would pick up roadkill to, like place on trails with game cams and then um, study scavenger succession with like groups of kids or whoever. Um, And yeah, way cool. I mean, you could just really cool. Was that part of the citizen uh, Citizen science project? No, this was when I, I I was a naturalist uh, and a teacher for third through eighth graders for this kind of stuff for a chunk of time. And uh, that's freaking awesome. I love that. It was so fun. And then sometimes, you know, and then it's like, you can save different, like save wings. If you find birds and look at feathers and look at the difference between silent flight feathers and owls and um and you know louder feathers and hawks and stuff like that or a turkey vultures who have feathers designed to make noise so that when they land they scare off anything else that's feeding on what they want to feed on and i didn't know that yeah you can see all that every day is a school day <laughs> yeah i mean it's just endlessly fascinating you know the little bits of um evolution and and uh, specialization in the natural world, but um, sometimes the roadkill would be very fresh, and I got good at, uh, with help, learning how to identify like whether something was safe to eat or not. Um, so that's what got me into wild game. And that's incredible, yeah. And pretty soon I started, you know, and I, at the time I was raising animals for meat, like goats and ducks and stuff like that, and had like a little micro farm. Um, and if, it was part of my sort of the culture of my community there too. So, I was learning how to process animals and getting more acquainted with that very complicated uh, task of taking a life in order for you to eat, yeah. Um, so you was this your transitioning from I mean what just to backtrack a little bit what had prompted you to become a vegetarian in the first place was it the um not being particularly comfortable with the way and the life of of animals as as livestock before they become yeah, food totally. I mean I think I read the jungle by Upton Sinclair in like the 6th grade and that was the beginning of the end of meat for me <laughs> just learning about the you know the industrial food system and how horrific it is. And I think also at that time, like there, there was not widespread knowledge about 
organic food or natural food or antibiotics and hormones and meat. It was just a dumpster fire of terrible meat production. And so I was just like, I'm done here. Like I can't find anything that makes me I'm out. comfortable, you know? And then I was offered a burger from a farmer, a cattle rancher who, who was my neighbor. And it was just, that was the beginning of meat again for me. I was like, wow, this is an entirely different food. Um, yeah. Yeah. See, I, th- I find this fascinating because I think that this, this speaks a lot to this idea that we have, especially as hunters, but I would, I would actually extend that to uh, farmers who farm with a certain uh, morality and, and um, conscious, uh, are, are conscious about livestock and husbandry. Yeah. Is that we have so much more in common with people who make that kind of life choice and become vegetarians for those motives than we have differences. And I really despise this uh, really hard line that's drawn and this them and us attitude because, one, it's not particularly constructive. But also, I think that it completely ignores the possibilities for creating a far more diverse landscape, both for, for people and wildlife. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, there's so many ways in which ranching and farming actually improve the landscape. And there's some great articles in Modern Huntsman about that regenerative grazing. And, um, you know, not all cattle are bad. <laughs> it's it's definitely... Yeah, well, yeah, try and tell that to people, the way that uh, all cattle have been alienated, you know, in recent years. But yeah, you're right. That particular article that you're talking about, I think was one that was done with, in conjunction with Epic about regenerative grazing was fantastic. I love that kind of resource. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's some really cool, um, you know, a lot of this stuff has been like so neighbor to neighbor. Um, and then you like the bigger a meat production company gets, the more complicated it gets, I think the harder it is to maintain quality and like truly um, healing food. Um, But there's some cool examples out there. One of them that's recently on my radar is called Carter Country Meats. And they're like a fully grass-fed, grass-finished, family-owned and operated cattle ranch up in Wyoming. So it's regional for me here. And I've been really enjoying supplementing my own diet with that food and amazing meat in addition to wild game. Cause I don't hunt. I'm not a good enough hunter that I can have wild game for the entire year, at least yet, but I'm getting better. I'm getting very close. This is actually the first year that my husband and I both got deer in the same year. So right now is like the best our freezer has ever looked. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, so just uh, tell me tell me a little bit more about the I mean you've already given given us quite a bit but tell me a little bit more about the the role and, and the job uh, that you're you're in now um just fle- flesh that out a bit m- more for me because it sounds fascinating I don't know of a kind of an umbrella organization like that here where I live in the UK Yeah um well hopefully there's one before too long cuz it's a brilliant concept that I didn't come up with <laughs> but uh Several of the, you know, main leaders, I would consider them like the, maybe the first people who really worked and established the outdoor industry here and have built a ton of the infrastructure in the business community um, that we now get to experience, um, came together and said, you know, we we need to 
unify. We need to get together. We need to be going to Congress um, with an organized um, agenda so that the hunters weren't coming at 10 o'clock and asking for this. And then the anglers weren't coming at 11 and asking for this. And then the climbers were coming at 1230 and asking for this. And so there was, um, there was a lot of, this was maybe a decade ago and it has been developing since, but in kind of a two way street back from the administration and also from the business community, people saying like, Hey, you need to pull together <laughs> and get, you know, more of a, um, unified front. So the outdoor recreation roundtable is that, and we represent all of the businesses and trade associations in the recreation industry. So we're the full breadth. I mean, it's like 5.2 million American jobs that we go and talk to Congress about and say, you know, here's, here's our value. Here's what we're worth. That's considerable. Yeah. You're what, 340 odd or something million people in the U.S. So that's like, that's pretty... Ch- I, the, when you're telling, explaining to me that the spectrum of uh, industry involved, which is the full breadth by the sound of it, the first thing that, that springs to mind is I'm thinking, well, would that work here? Is it, I just can't see many of those, um, like the, the segments of the outdoor industry wanting to associate themselves in the same organization as any, as any organization that has anything to do with hunting fishing you might get away with it there are some crossovers there that i've seen but as soon as it has anything to do with killing of animals with a gun we can't bow hunt here i think most of them would say i'm sorry we're out was that a and do you know if that was an i know i i feel like this it's less of an issue in the states but uh, what do you know if that was a, a problem with some aspects of the outdoors community in the early stages of it um I imagine it was. However, I think that the strength and the power of the common ground outweighed the differences. Um, There are so many people. And I think the fact that it's the business community also um, sort of levels the playing field a little bit there, too. Okay, yeah. Um, You know, it's, it's not a coalition of conservation organizations. I think that would be far more difficult, especially for the reasons that you're talking about. It's not an ideology. It's, it's Absolutely. a technical thing. It's business. Um, and so I think that that helps. Um, but also, you know, so many of these people like go hunting, they have an RV, they have a four wheeler, you know, they use a tent, they have the same boots that the backpacker has. Like there's, when you start to peel back the layers, like it doesn't look all that different. Like the killing no. is the tough part, <laughs> but um, I think we're, you know, and that's part of our job, right? With modern huntsmen is like to continually human humanize what hunting can be and, um, and tell the real stories of how deeply ingrained in many beneficial aspects of wildlife and conservation it actually is. That's incredible. So, I mean, I'm sure there's too many to mention, but what are the a couple of the kind of major drives and initiatives that the organization is working towards right now? I mean, it must be a little strange right now with elections coming up in November, but... Yeah, everything is strange right now. Um, the big things for the year have been the Great American Outdoors Act and LWCF, as we've talked about, and now so, yeah. so much... I mean. I think we celebrated for about 20 minutes and then immediately pivoted towards all of the implementation work that is just it kind of feels like 
even though that was a mountain to climb, the hard work just began. Um, so we've pivoted immediately into making sure that that money gets rolled out in a way that has the highest recreation output. Um, and just making sure nothing, kind of having some oversight uh, as much as we can over what's happening with the different agencies. And we've been working really closely with the Forest Service to give feedback on behalf of the business community and help them understand what recreation needs are and what they look like. And um, it was a really cool year for that same relationship with COVID. Um, There was a tremendous amount of collaboration uh, between the federal agencies and the business community. And we ended up um, being on calls with them very frequently trying to figure out how to reopen public lands safely because it was this coordinated effort between the national parks and the guides and outfitters and the user groups and, you know, being able to educate and inform all those different um, players and say, here's what needs to happen. So campgrounds can stay open for the rest of the summer and these businesses can stay in operation. So, um, and then, you know, initially when the, there was a, a stimulus package that came out earlier this year that had uh, the Paycheck Protection Program in it. Um, and initially, that didn't, uh, the way you had to apply for it didn't um, work for seasonal businesses, which so many of the outdoor industry businesses are seasonal. Um, so, you know, there's, I could, this is probably getting a little wonky for everybody listening, but um, there's a thousand little things like that where we're continually having to explain kind of how to best work with the recreation industry and, and make sure that we're taking care of it. Yeah, no, but it's so fundamental. We, we had a very similar problem here with the uh, the, the stimulus package that, that was announced uh, for businesses, and it excluded a, a lot of hunting operations. Oh, wow. Quite delib- What seems to be quite deliberately. I mean, they managed oh, to no. fix it. Yeah. Uh, but it, it totally, it's certainly in terms of the Scottish context, I... I have every confidence that it was fairly deliberate because it was it, to fix it. It took weeks, mm-hmm. and it was way longer than it, than it needed to be. And at the same time as that was going on, there was push from uh, like temporary regulations for things that directly affect the hunting industry, uh, like the, they closed the season for burning heather, uh, which is one of our management t- tools for grouse moors. Uh, I think it was a, a month early for absolutely we don't they'd already voluntarily stopped just in case there was an extra burden on the emergency services should something go wrong never mind the fact that it's normally the gamekeepers who are helping the emergency services when wildfires actually start because they have the tools and actually more knowledge than than the fire services of dealing with fires like that because they do it on a yearly basis with their rotational uh, rotational burning. So they're always asked to come and help. Uh, but the Green Party pushed through this early restriction and it really felt like it was just like a tester. It's like, can we get away with this? Yes, we can. Can we get away with not providing support for certain elements of the, the shooting community? Uh, well, y- yes, we kind of did. It almost went under the radar, which is... I don't know, it's one of those frustrations that we seem to deal with here on a weekly basis almost. It sounds like we need an international forum for outdoor recreation economies. <laughs> I, I would I would love it. I, I you know, I and I think that 
having exactly as you outlined having that that weight behind you which is the whole spectrum of the outdoors industry all pushing forward for a common goal makes a tremendous difference it's so fragmented here there's no cohesion whatsoever in the outdoors industry in the UK and i think that's probably true actually in many parts of the world and it would make a, a massive impact if there could be this much more collaborative approach so that we can get essentially get the ear of government because that's the biggest issue is to actually get them to listen to you and then implement change that that is positive for the outdoors community because so many of the you know i increasingly feel like so many of the um the changes that are put in place which may or may not be with the best intentions to for conservation or environmental protection, completely neglect the people actually in the landscape and who want to use the landscape. And, and actually, then this goes to something that I, I write about in the the next issue of volume uh, of the the next issue of Modern Huntsman, Volume Six, which is this um, like the resilience of biodiversity and what I believe is the need to reintegrate people within nature and not have this uh, preservationist, isolationist view of that's nature over there, we're going to protect it and put the resources in to protect it. But hey, you as humans, you're not part of that, so don't go and interfere, which is where we seem to be going so often. It's extracting people. We talk about getting people connected with nature, but so many of the things that governments do don't speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and so many ecosystems depend on a healthy amount of disturbance, right? You know, and, absolutely. Yep. And without uh, large animals doing that and moving seeds and dumping fertilizer and without people doing small, uh, small burns in the understory like we're we're missing so much our ecologies are in a void for a lot of interaction and so i i agree with you completely that the the keep people out mentality um it was reactionary when it happened and it's it's caused a lot of damage in in the health of ecosystems especially in, i don't mean i don't know a ton about scotland but in north america it's just crazy and yeah that was a lot of what my uh article on uh, wild boars and their role in Northern California ecosystem in volume three was about because they're, they're looked at as this non-native nuisance and they're way overpopulated and they're, they are causing a lot of damage. But if you looked at their disturbance in a smaller, if you got their numbers down in a way that their, um, their impact was lightened, then it actually mimics a lot of what grizzly bears and elk used to do in the ecosystem in California who are both, you know, no longer there really. There's some elk, but not from a functional perspective. Um, so it's, it's interesting to think about how, you know, if we can't necessarily recreate the exact ecosystem that was there before by having the same numbers of wildlife or whatever, like how do we accept what kind of disturbance regimes are available to us now in order to make sure that things are getting germinated and propagated and um, intended to. Yeah, absolutely. I know that one of the things that's been talked about uh, off the back of the horrendous fires that 
you guys have suffered the, this year. Well, I mean, not just not just North America, but up in the Arctic, and then last year in Australia, is really embracing the indigenous knowledge that exists within those ecosystems and did operate very effectively from uh, for fire mitigate as a fire mitigation measure for thousands of years. And then, well, the basically European settlers put an end to that because they thought, oh, fire is bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really fascinating, um, kind of rabbit hole to go down, you know, because I, it wasn't until maybe 10 years ago that I learned that some seeds are only fire germinated, you know, and you think about that just for a second, you're like, Oh my God, these plants have evolved for thousands of years to depend on fire as a presence in the ecosystem. And we're cutting it out completely. And, um, I was just in California recently um, and my good friend, Sashua, who is the photographer for that um, wild boar article in volume three, he was looking back into some old books about indigenous people in California. And, um, and he found a segment that said, I don't know what the numbers are now for California, but at the time I was out there, it was about 3 million acres that had burned. And they estimated that that was the same amount of acreage that native people used to burn annually in California. And of course, it wasn't these huge canopy fires. It was understory. It was more manageable. You know, smoke was more of a role in the upper canopy rather than flame. But it just hit me. as like, wow, like the, the magnitude of what California is experiencing right now. It seems just completely devastating and outrageous. And it is, but if you, but it's actually like, given the scale is completely horrible right now, but the amount of acreage is that is, you know, a historical part of the land management. And he was reading poems that had to, that mentioned smoke filling the river corridors as. Oh, that's fascinating. I know. Yes. I've heard about this. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And how it um, cooled the rivers when the fish were running. Yes, yes, exactly. And so, you know, I mean, what's happening now is horrible, and I by no means am trying to minimize it. But um, but there is an ancient relationship there that we need to figure out how to uh, be, you know, in harmony with again in some way, shape, or form. So the whole the whole fire suppression management strategy is just it's got to go. Um, but hopefully, some of this um, money from GAOA is going to go to deferred maintenance on public land. It's going to go to the Forest Service. They're going to be able to do, you know, more of the work that they haven't been able to do. Um, it's all all part of where we're headed, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it it, it just really speaks to this idea that reintegrating people where they can where they can really help maintain these wild spaces but they are they're wild spaces but yet with the hand of humans mm-hmm. uh, and you utilizing or i don't even think utilizes is the right word like embracing embracing indigenous knowledge like they have there or in australia is absolutely key like it's crazy that that hasn't been integrated with the science that we understand you know it's, we're only really talking about it now in the last 18 months yeah well and you know it has to do with some of these um very celebrated white 
colonial conservation figures in in North America, you know, like the John Mears of the world. They walked into places like Yosemite Valley and said, look at this fertile, wild land untouched by people, you know, and really they were looking at the gardens of, um, of the native people there, you know, of the Miwok. And it's just so ingrained in our early understanding of these places that they were a wilderness, you know, and they weren't, they were very carefully, very, um, intelligently managed landscapes. Yeah. And I think, uh, just following on from that, a mindset that we need to get out of uh, as humans when it comes to conservation is that we are not trying to establish this uh, snapshot, this kind of portrait of what exists in continuation because landscapes evolve and change. Yeah. Yeah. Over time. And uh, this idea that they can just be protected to to exist as they exist now is not something that is sustainable in the long term right uh, that, that doesn't mean you know but I, I say that at the same time as recognizing that that is not uh, that is not making a case for the degradation of these of, of these environments and ecosystems right. but the fact that they that they are a dy- dynamic system yeah yeah and it's like the whole concept of native or non-native plants was it's based on when white colonial settlers came to North America and said, here's when the time clock begins. And it's just not, it's not reality. No. I wanted to ask you about, uh, I think it was the first article that you wrote in Modern Huntsman uh, because it was focused on uh, citizen science, which I actually wrote a piece about not that long ago um, in another publication. Uh, And it's, it's something which I really wish more people would get involved in. And it's so easy to do. If you just go and Google citizen science and like the country that you're in, there'll probably be a dozen different ways that you can get involved. Everything from fixing walkways and like, uh, or counting butterflies or birds or, I mean, in the UK, I think we, we have a, a bird survey that happens every year, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, is run by the RSPB, and they ask people, I think it's over a period of the same two or three days so that the, they can try and work. I mean, I guess they have um, uh, and they have an algorithm for working it out so that they don't get like cross-counting between people. So over two or three days, all of these people who take part in it across the country at the same time are, are giving uh, the numbers of birds on their feeders or in their garden. Uh, there's loads of things that you can do to contribute to citizen science, but you, you wrote a whole piece about this. Yeah. You know, in, in a life do over scenario, I would be some type of research biologist. So for me, citizen science is like this way to fulfill the, the team Zisu um, part of me that otherwise <laughs> <laughs> get to live out in the world. But um, I agree with you completely. It's such a, a cool thing to be a part of. And um, is tremendously contributing to tons of different research projects all around the world. It's cool to hear what you guys have going on there. But um, this one is called uh, the Wasatch Mammal Watch Program, and it's designed by a PhD student here called Austin Green at the University of Utah. And he partnered with all the different agencies here and a couple of nonprofits to set up the 
uh, a widespread camera trap survey um, for uh, mostly large mammals in the Wasatch Mountains of Utah, which run kind of north-south along the the valley, the Salt Lake Valley. Um, And interestingly enough, that wildlife-urban interface is the densest in the country, and it's also the most highly visited national forest in the country. And it sees millions of more people than all five national parks in Utah combined. So we have this really um, important ecosystem. It supplies all the water to the people of Salt Lake. And yet (laughs) there's um, intense visitation and habitat pressure. So um, there's a group of us that monitor collectively over 200 cameras throughout the summer season. Um, And one of the, I think, most uh, impactful aspects of it is that cameras are able, you know, it's like the game cams that hunters use that take photos with um, either heat or motion sensor. Uh, And you can get 24 hours of data where in, if you're just a researcher, you know, you get the snapshot that you were able to see with your clipboard while you were standing there at your research plot or whatever it was. So you're able to get like incredible depth. Um, and we, we monitored the entire range. And now it's its third year. Um, we just completed the field season. And it's the most successful citizen science project on record now. Um, so wow, yeah, really cool that it's um, been so widely celebrated, and the data has been picked up by so many of the agents. You know, the Department of Transportation and the Department of Wildlife here, because they're trying to figure out how to develop um, wildlife corridors in the area, how to manage housing development, and then really measure the disturbance of people on animals and. What they're finding is so fascinating. The whole con- one of the concepts coming out of it is that wildlife in this area has what's called a weekend effect, which means have you know certain behaviors Monday through Friday, and then on the weekends when people are flooding the trails, they have an entirely different um, behavior pattern, which causes overlap in species that didn't have it before. It shortens hunting hours for top predators. All sorts of strange and very important effects um, are being measured. But one of my biggest takeaways from being a part of it, and one of the things I try and share with people, um, because I think it's critical and also really relatable, is that this disturbance and these behavior changes are happening with wildlife, whether you're hunting or not. It's the same thing is happening if you're skiing, if you're hiking, if you're Gavin on the trail with your friends, you know, you're causing this impact. And I think so often we look at hunters and anglers as takers in the landscape, even though 99% of the time we're just hikers with weapons. <laughs> but um, it, it for me, started to level that conversation a little bit more by saying like, hey, we need to all recreationalists, we need to look at our impact, whether, whether we're a hunter or a hiker or not. Yeah, and it's so true. I know that there's some preliminary research that uh, has been done over this period of uh, global lockdown in some countries, which is how 
Well, firstly, how are animals reacting to the fact that no one has been around? And then as lockdown started to lift because, and this goes to something we, we started talking about at the beginning of the podcast, was more people were ac- uh, accessing these trails and more remote and wild spaces. And so there was actually no weekend effect because no one was at work. And they were they were accessing, them, accessing these places in greater densities throughout the entire week. And how was that affecting wildlife? And, and it's really interesting to see these dynamics and understand them as importantly. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I would absolutely encourage everybody in their area to Google citizen science and figure out what they can get involved in, because it just gives you such purpose in your place, you know, and you, you get to meet really cool people. And I think immediately get engaged with what's happening in your area and learn from usually like amazing regional experts um, about your ecosystem. But yeah, there's a lot of cool, cool projects to be a part of now. I think it's becoming more and more um, popular. And, and I think, you know, the funding is coming down the pipe for these projects too, as the research um, is more and more impactful. One of the projects that we have ongoing, which is specifically for people who shoot Uh, it's collated, I'm not sure who does the analysis, but it's certainly collated by the British uh, Association for Shooting and Conservation. Uh, And you send in, throughout the wildfowling season, you send in the wings of birds that you've hunted. Oh, very. Um, And I think that this particular species that they're interested in more than others, uh, and they're able to do genetic sampling on them and and look at the the crossovers and populations and where where in which parts of the world they they overwinter from and are coming here. And it's a a really good way of essentially using the byproduct of, of food to learn more and contribute to the conservation of these species going forward which is something which uh, you know we talk about it a lot as people who hunt and people who fish but beyond like if you're in 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 the states you know beyond paying your compulsory tax which then might be used for some conservation project most of us probably don't physically actually like contribute to any kind of research that is facilitating the scientific knowledge of conservation. And this is a great example of something that you can do very easily just by taking the wings off, sticking them in a packet, and sending them to the address um, that's on the website. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I think that's one of the debilitating aspects of uh, wildlife management and conservation here among hunters is they think, oh, well, I paid my excise tax with my license and, you know, the fees on my ammo and tackle, but, um, but it's not enough, you know, it's, it's really not. What are you actually contributing beyond what you have no choice to contribute? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the same argument could be said where you're like, Oh, I'm, I support bridges because I paid my taxes this year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, American Prairie Reserve, this is something I wanted to, I'm conscious of, I don't know how on earth we've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes, but we have. Um, American Prairie Reserve, I wanted to ask you about this, because there was another article that you wrote, and I have to say that, like, and until I, I think I was sitting in Montana with Tyler when I possibly did a first edit of that, uh, it was the first time that I was aware of the American Prairie Reserve. I didn't know anything about it before that. Um, explain what it is for, yeah. for people. Oh, so it's 
it's amazing. I'm, it's also new to my uh, radar in the last couple of years and being able to work on this project, but um, it is a nonprofit uh, based in Northern Montana. And it is a group of people that have uh, begun, well, they've been working on it for quite some time now, but the, the grasslands were as they were identified as being one of the most underpreserved ecosystems in the world. And when that research came out, people started to strategically look at which areas of the world had the highest potential for reestablishing sort of the Northern Great Plains ecosystem. And based on existing native grassland, uh, meaning like unaffected by agriculture, um, other sort of national monuments and protected land, and also the uh, areas protected by native reservations. This area around the Missouri Breaks in Montana was identified, so that's where people dug their heels in and started to do this work. But it's um, it's a mosaic project now where they're strategically buying land and stitching it together in order to create a three million acre preserve. And there's, they're reintroduced, they've reintroduced bison to the landscape um, and other wildlife in order to recreate this northern Great Plains ecosystem. So it's, but it's so, who funds it? Because it's privately owned then, essentially, is it? Yeah, it's privately owned. So it's donors and I think grants as well. Wow. Okay. And are they putting a fence around it or is there a free flow of, uh, game populations and species between areas which are now the American Prairie Reserve and, and whatever is neighboring them? Yeah, so there's, um, I think there's a combination of all of the above. They have certain fences for the bison. Um, of course, yeah. And then they have other fences so that, you know, the pronghorn can move. I forget, I forget the details, but it's like if a wire is a certain height, then the pronghorn can get through, but the mule deer can't, or vice versa. You know, so they have this like you got you, yeah, yeah, mathematical perfection with how they do some fencing in order to let certain species migrate and others not. Um, and then a lot of it is open. I mean, a couple of the things that make this um, conservation effort really stand out is that one, it's technically it's private land, but it's all passable to get to public land. So there's no, absolutely no land locking that happens as a part of this project. Um, and two is that hunting is a fundamental aspect of their ethos around how this land should be managed and how people should have a relationship to it. Um, so it's open to the public for hunting. That's amazing. So it's, it's, it's being viewed as active management. Yeah, yeah. And Montana, um, when you get into the hunting reg- regulations, uh, technically, it's block management. Yeah, which means you just have to have, um, it, it means the owner can, uh, in partnership with the Department of Wildlife, sort of decide what, how many species uh, should go from the land that year. That's fascinating. And you had the opportunity to go and hunt there. How does that system actually work? Because I know on your public lands, 
you go to a public office or you apply online and you, and you get your over-the-counter tag. So how, how do you get permission to go and hunt on what is essentially private land? Yeah, so you get your tag and your license the same way you would in any state. And then I was just actually reading up on this this week and refreshing myself because I want to go back next year. Um, you uh, you have There's a certain date where you have to call and make a reservation. Um, so you don't miss that date on your calendar, which is, I think the same thing. Utah is not a block management state, so I don't know how this works in other states. It's probably different everywhere, but I, I know that's the same for other places in Montana where it's like, it's block management. You know, I have a general tag for that region. Um, and then I call and, and, and reserve days that I want to go hunting there of which they're limited. So it's, it's not. Um, a free-for-all. And has there been any resistance to this uh, sort of series of buy-ups, essentially? Uh, Because it it feels like something that some people might object to. Highly controversial, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah, in fact, as you're driving in, uh, there's all sorts of signs that say, save the cowboy, stop the American Prairie Reserve. Um, and is this because they've been buying up small ranches that would have been traditionally sort of small family owned ranches? Yeah, I think there's a, a, a sizable amount of resistance to the concept of people from out of state buying and privatizing land. Um, for good reason, you know, like that's a scary thing. Uh, you have a lot of power when you have land and especially when it's in such quantities. Um, but in, all the conversations that I've had, the perspective that I've come to is that, you know, a lot of these uh, families and people that have ranching heritage up there were, you know, the first folks to sort of settle in that area. There's absolutely the mentality of we came and we tamed this place. We got rid of the beasts that ran through it. We turned it into productive agriculture in a place that could sustain us and feed us. And we served the people and the community by doing so. And this tremendous accomplishment that this landscape is now a grain producing. Conquered basically. Yeah, exactly. Like, but there's so much pride in that, you know, it's, it's, it's completely ingrained in the American cowboy mentality and so and i get that i do get that yeah i understand it do i have empathy around it for sure so the concept of a group of people who are going to reverse all that by (laughs) putting those species back actually letting the land go feral um encouraging the grasslands to take over again is um you know it's an opposition to i think a lot of their their fundamental beliefs about what's right or wrong for that area yeah, but I suppose I mean I I don't know how the the land buyups work, but you can't buy something that's privately owned unless it is on the market. Or if you approach someone and say, "Hey, here's a sum of money. Would you like to sell?" They can't force because it's not government owned. Correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, this isn't this isn't like a, a, a country in Central Africa where the government just comes and takes your <laughs> takes your land, even if it's under private ownership. Right. Uh, this is there. It, this it has to be by. Um, um, you know, by mutual discussion and agreement. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it has to be offered up or for sale in the first place. I mean, there must be a a reason why people want to sell their, uh, you know, sell their small holding or their farm 
in the first place. So, but I, but I can see how the remaining uh, ranchers, as they see this landscape changing around them, most people don't like change, and change can feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I suppose the risk that sits, or I would be concerned with is yeah as it stands right now maybe you're going to tell me something about the sort of the fundamental tenants that they they write into the ownership but is they it could be purchased with all of these amazing intentions right now and it sounds so idyllic and, and amazing in this this process of active management and people can essentially use these sustainable wild resources and it sounds brilliant but at some point in the future they could change their mind as to what they use this land for. Is there anything to stop them doing that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And um, I listened to a lengthy podcast from the founder kind of talk about um, his answer to this question because I I have the same concern. It's like anybody's mission can change at any moment. And then then what? So how we typically have defense in those scenarios is with land trusts and conservation easements and um, ways of putting land into determined protected designations uh, to keep that sort of stuff from happening. And the perspective of the, um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but people can look it up, but the the main guy uh, for the APR, he was saying that he's all, he's all about those protections, but most of them are outdated. Um, most of them uh, don't, they're not going to change and adapt to the, the modern or most innovative grazing practices that are available to us now. They're based on what we knew 50 years ago. And he wanted to be able to continually be innovating on the best land management uh, practices available rather than be beholden to, let's say, the Department of Wildlife of Montana um, and their view of how bison should be on the landscape. So, um, I mean, there's certainly an element of like you have to trust these people. And I was going to say there's there's trust involved yeah. in this, but they want to embrace adaptive change yep. with the with the best interest of the land at heart. I suppose the 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 argument there would be okay. Well, it's in the best interest of of, of the land and the wildlife and the ecosystem, but isn't in the best interest of the people who live there. And I suppose that might be some of the resistance that uh, that continues. Yeah, and I think you know. I'm was, thinking jobs. Hmm. Yeah, and I I don't know enough about the economy of the surrounding farms and ranches uh, to the APR to speak to that. But um, but I know that a lot of small scale agriculture is really struggling, and that industry is is going away to a certain degree. So I, my guess is that it wasn't very economical in the first place. In the first place, yeah. Now that's true of so much. I mean, there's a lot of farming in here in Scotland, which is would not be economical if it wasn't without government subsidies. And then you have to ask the question, is this really the best use of the land? Or should we be using that land in a different way that does actually make economic sense and maybe... Uh, it will encourage or force us to embrace uh, a use which is more sympathetic to the landscape for a start, but also makes us use um, sustainable wild resources, like replacing 
sheep with deer or um that's uh, we're not going to get into it but that is that would be a very uh controversial statement here because we're trying to actually the, the government are trying to reduce deer populations but you know sheep are mouths on the the land as well they graze basically the same stuff and we have about the same amount of sheep as we have as we have deer currently speaking uh but there's plenty of research to suggest that in those uh, very harsh environments, you get far better conversion um, to protein uh, if you have deer on the landscape. Fascinating. Um, yeah, it's really fascinating. And I mean, the, the, the same is true of changing agricultural practices and putting different types of uh, breeds of cattle or sheep or you know other livestock on the land and managing them in a in a different system so that it's more in harmony with the natural processes processes that would be there rather than this kind of uh, monoculture landscape where it's all just grass fields that are grazed incredibly heavily um i, the, the, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of progress to be made there and just going back something we, we touched on sort of halfway through the show, I think that you brought up, uh, is that the, I, I think we have a lot to learn about not completely changing, changing, our, changing our systems before we, we fully understand what the, the implications are going to be. Because we know that uh, with the right mechanisms and the right planning in place, that lower density uh, grazing of cattle in certain environments can actually be beneficial for those ecosystems. Uh, whereas most of the public, if you were to ask them about cattle now, they would only say negative things about it. Right. Right. Yeah. And you have such great topics on this podcast. It made me think of the um, your recent episode with the carbon sequestration uh, oh, with the trees. Yeah, it was fascinating. Have the best intentions, and yet, you know, we're still have so much to learn about how the ecosystem actually responds to things. Lindsay, it's been incredible to speak to you. Um, I would quite happily do another podcast with you for exactly the same length of time, but I, I don't want to hold you up anymore. It's also midnight here. Oh um, so I suppose, it's, I suppose I need to go home at some point. But that's absolutely not a problem. I'm not, I'm not complaining. Um, this is just that uh, this is a function of having a global podcast and uh, so many, Amer uh, so many listeners in America and so many friends and contacts I have in the States and then just, uh, and other parts of the world in completely different time zones to me. I don't mind whatsoever. It's been amazing to have you on today. Um, I'm just, I, I just wish that I should have been in the States about this time uh, hunting with my friends and it would have been awesome to do that with you, but um, COVID-19 and all that. Well, we can meet up on the APR for a, a mule deer hunt next fall. How about that? That sounds like a deal. I'm going <laughs> to hold you to that. Okay. Well, planning starts now, but yeah, Byron, thank you. Okay really a treat to be on here amidst all the other fabulous guests that you have and i appreciate you uh, burning the midnight oil to have this conversation well i massively appreciate your time thank you very much Lindsay. thanks byron 